Welcome to Nature and the Leviathan, where we talk about matters of the environment and institutions of the state. The natural world is in a state of crisis. Industrial human activity is driving natural ecosystems to the brink, so much so that this period of time has a name, the Anthropocene. Any search in a scientific journal will reveal the extensiveness of this damage. Insects, the foundations of many land ecosystems, have rapidly declined in recent years, where nearly 40% of insect species are threatened with extinction. Since 1970, populations of mammals, birds, fish, amphibians, and reptiles have declined by an average of 68%. Beyond even animal populations, human encroachment on natural habitats has often resulted in total ecological collapse. Today, less than a fifth of the world's primeval forest remains. In both the terrestrial and ocean world, modern humans are undoubtedly the single largest factor in causing widespread change, often to the detriment of planetary life. Of course, there are many reasons why this is happening. Off-cited in scientific literature is habitat destruction for intensive agriculture, with countries like Brazil cutting down large swathes of previously untouched Amazon rainforest. Industrial farming produces fertilizer runoffs, making vast sections of the ocean like the Gulf of Mexico inhospitable to life. Consequently, those staple food products go toward the production of livestock, whose millions of tons of animal waste present health hazards and methane emissions contribute to climate change. In places like California, aquifers that were filled thousands of years ago are quickly being dried up and water demands from both cities and agriculture are putting immense pressure on the state's natural wetlands. In other places, the toxic runoffs of industrial pollution have devastating effects on both human health and the environment. In producing the raw materials to supply the world's growing demand for consumer goods, mines tear up natural habitats, replacing them with blighted landscapes leaving the topsoil vulnerable to erosion. The chemicals used in this process leach off into water supplies, poisoning local wildlife and the people that depend on increasingly scarce water resources. In manufacturing, millions of people are subject to the effects of toxic air and land, with carcinogenic materials often finding their way into human supply chains. Urban expansion, along with an increasingly car-centric world, puts additional pressure on strained ecosystems, the roads that connect these suburbs and cities split ecosystems into sections that cannot sustain healthy populations of animals. Natural fauna is replaced with cement roads and houses, with forests and plains retreating farther and farther, until they become virtually non-existent. And above all of this, carbon emissions from our endless use of energy is leading to climate change. The use of fossil fuels is threatening us with rising sea levels, increased droughts, unpredictable weather, and a myriad of other changes to the earth. There are few topics that are getting as much public attention as climate change, and rightfully so. This is an existential threat. So many entities have a stake in climate change that publications like the Financial Times, which hardly cares for environmental justice or ethics, has an entire section dedicated specifically to climate. However, despite the magnitude of the problem and its effects, it is important to recognize that while climate change is arguably the most important, it is not the genesis of our modern environmental problems. Suppose that when we wake up tomorrow, some magical force removes all of the anthropogenic carbon emissions to date, and makes all human activity carbon neutral. It would be a great cause for festivities, but has anything changed? 
Fisheries will still collapse. Primeval forests will be cut down for farmland. Millions of tons of waste will be poured into the ocean. And topsoil degradation will increase desertification. Fundamentally, not much would have changed about the human relation to the environment. Of course, there are a multitude of solutions which have been envisioned by environmentalists. If we all transitioned to plant-based diets and eliminated food waste, we would be efficient enough with our agricultural enterprises to feed the whole planet. There would simply be no reason to continue cutting down forests or using ever-increasing amounts of pesticides. If the United States had an efficient high-speed rail system and enough people to use it, the reduction of cars produced would have a huge climate benefit. Furthermore, the reduction in car traffic means less iron, lithium, and copper will need to be mined for the production of said cars. Or if we were able to lower excess consumption, the strain on the environment would be lower and would conceivably give us a chance of preserving most of it. The crucial word is if. Nearly every ambitious idea of this type hinges on the political, economic, and social viability of its implementation, but environmental solutions seem particularly impossible. This is the crux of the issue, the thing that makes environmental change seem like a gargantuan task, and the purpose of this series is to analyze how institutions make this sort of change so difficult. Why are institutions important? The reason is quite obvious. Institutions, whether created as a government branch or grassroots movement, replicate and shape the behavior of those living within its societal bounds. These are the established social norms and traditions, which are made self-reinforcing through organization. Today, millions of Americans go to the polls and vote because there is a political institution which determines representation based on votes. And in doing so, Americans give legitimacy to those democratic institutions justifying the continued funding of electoral offices. It is this mutual relationship that makes societies and behaviors predictable. This point of institutionalization is best illustrated by religion, regardless of its organizational structure or scripture. People choose their faith for a multitude of reasons. This can be a spiritual reason, the circumstances of their upbringing, or a genuine belief in a higher being. The reason for participation is irrelevant. Albeit imperfectly, the existence of religion has gotten people to go vegetarian, alter their Sunday plans, or forsake pork, and participation perpetuates the existence of that religion, leading to situations where churches hold sway over generations of people. The same thing can be said about the environment. Recall my silly statement on using magic to solve climate change. The same hypothetical can be applied to any sort of environmental issue, hyperbolic statements notwithstanding. Get rid of one problem and the other ones are still in crisis. We know what it means to destroy the environment in a personal, non-systematic way. Not using plastics, not killing endangered animals or plants, and setting up national parks. That cycle of destruction is stopped. But this is not the case with our environmental problems on a macro scale. On the whole, people do not make the behavioral changes necessary to curb environmental damage. Oftentimes, the conversation is shifted towards one of human nature such as the tastiness of animal foods or the pursuit of convenience that is ingrained into our survival mechanisms. But relying on these types of arguments is both purposeless and reductive. The fact is, we have changed the conditions of society so dramatically that it is increasingly clear that institutions play a significant role in shaping behavior. Human nature is only a partial explanation. None of the context that brought about the evolution of our behavior is relevant. Exchange using paper and digital currency, industrial production of goods, and the institutions of the modern nation-state are products of modern technology and ideologies, 
not the natural eventuality of human civilization. This is especially true in the case of the environment, where we have been at a near equilibrium for most of our history as a species. Thus, it is more than likely that modern institutions are the thing that is reinforcing destructive behavior at large. The most emblematic phenomenon is green business and sustainable industry. When confronted with the issue of overconsumption, the first answer is always to increase efficiency of said product, or make that product green or sustainable. While an electric vehicle or solar energy is significantly less damaging than a combustion engine or fossil fuel extraction, they nevertheless have some environmental cost. There are numerous ethical and philosophical arguments to be made about non-consumption. Perhaps because of the enormous environmental cost, and thus social cost, certain products or services should never be available, or at least limited in supply. Instead, a price is often put on pollutants and environmental damages, as though the cost of life could be dollarized. This is the logic of punitive environmental fines, the idea that the damages of livelihood to people caused by climate change could be paid for. I would reckon that many people would find assigning a dollar value to a baby's lung to be quite appalling. This type of argument is not particularly radical or unusual. Rather, it is commonly made in the social debate around reproductive rights. When arguments are made for or against abortion, it is an affront to morality to describe abortions as a decrease in potential economic production. You'd be hard-pressed to find anyone on either side of the pro-life or pro-choice debate to argue about abortion in a purely financial context, in which case there are more important things than just economic value of a certain policy. After all, the phrase reduce, reuse, recycle emphasizes that reduction is the best way of eliminating waste and in turn preventing unnecessary environmental damage. But this alternative on a macroscopic scale is never a consideration and this has to do with how economic growth is ingrained into our political system. Oil is important because it is the context within which economic growth developed. Much of what we conceive of modern civilization today is derived from the discovery and proliferation of fossil fuels, particularly oil. All work requires energy as prescribed by the physical laws of this universe. Thus, before the discovery of these dense fossil fuel energy sources, all of human civilization followed along areas where there are abundant sources of renewable energies, creating social and political structures that reflected this reality. As disparate tribes of early humans settled into their agricultural and settled lifestyles, they clustered around areas that followed the natural distribution of solar energy. In Mesopotamia, evaporation powered by solar energy deposited precipitation in the mountains of Anatolia forming the rivers Tigris and Euphrates. As they meandered towards the ocean, they took with them rich sediments from the mountains, depositing it in basins that would become some of the world's most fertile farmland. This supply of water and favorable climate allowed for the formation of permanent settlements, which continued growing in size, allowing it to cultivate more land and feed even greater populations. These large labor pools allowed for the expansion of industrial activity, large bureaucracies, and intricate social systems. Other parts of the world that followed similar distributions of solar energy developed in much the same way, with civilization starting in the basins of the Nile River in Egypt, the Indus, Ganges, and Yamuna rivers in India, the Yellow and Yangtze rivers in China, the Fortaleza, Petivilca, and Supe rivers in Peru, and the Bolsas River Basin in Mexico. Agricultural production represented power, and growth only existed insofar as you were able to agriculturally sustain it. 
These areas would become absolutely crucial to the later, larger empires that would follow in the footsteps of these early settlements. For other civilizations, abundant wind power allowed for the flourishing of trade along coastal towns, and subsequent wealth allowed them to purchase grain and material supplies from other, more fertile areas. Those nations not blessed by abundant renewable energy sought out and conquered places that had it. In Europe, which was considered a backwater for most of history, this resulted in massive colonial economies that exported the product of abundant energy back to the homeland. For this particular reason, imperial supply chains were crucial for maintaining wealth and prosperity, which in turn kept the rules of European imperial powers stable. As those imperial powers matured and their colonial populations grew larger, they had to conquer more areas where abundant natural resources laid. It was, as Gregory Cushman called it, a form of neo-ecological colonialism. As he puts it, Rather than enabling the conquest of new environments and their settlement by invasive organisms and ethnicities, neo-ecological imperialism primarily focused on the maintenance and improvement of environments already inhabited by European-derived peoples. In the Pacific world, neo-ecological imperialism at first focused on the search for whales, manures, and minerals, which were used to provide light, replenish soils, and produce meats in locales close to imperial centers of population and power. These post-colonial nations, turned imperial powers, did so, in large part, to remedy the depopulation and degradation of lands conquered during earlier phases of ecological imperialism. The proliferation of oil resources and its magnificent ability to free up the energy constraints of the global economy fundamentally changed this sort of behavior. In fact, the most rapid environmental damages have only been a phenomenon associated with the last century or so. Timothy Mitchell gives a perfectly succinct description of what oil did for the global economy. Although increasing quantities of energy were consumed, the cost of energy did not appear to represent a limit to growth. Second, thanks to its relative abundance and the ease of shipping it across oceans, oil could be treated as something inexhaustible. The growth of the economy, measured in terms of GDP, had no need to account for the depletion of energy resources. This represented a fundamental shift in the patterns of energy distributions, and in turn power towards oil-rich nations. Suddenly, countries who had access to oil, whether through trade or their colonial territories, no longer had to obey these archaic natural distributions. Instead of relying on controlling territories with natural fertilizers, the Haber-Bosch process allowed countries to make their own synthetic fertilizers. In areas with insufficient water supplies, the proliferation of diesel and electric motors allowed individual farming complexes to extract previously untouched aquifer resources leading to the flourishing of agriculture in desert regions like Southern California and Saudi Arabia. Instead of having to rely only on the richest surface deposits of minerals, heavy machinery and modern drills allowed us to find ever-increasing quantities of raw materials. Enormous swathes of forest could be cut down using modern technology to make way for agricultural production. Fossil fuels made modern roads possible, which requires massive amounts of heat energy to produce. In turn, the ready accessibility of roads allowed cars to be used by the masses, allowing for the expansion of car-centric suburban neighborhoods. We thought we had mastered the environment, in which economies could infinitely grow and make people's lives more prosperous. In a time of peace, no longer did nations have to turn to territorial conquest in order to maintain economic prosperity.
Today, economic growth has become the object of many governments around the world. Nearly all economists agree that a growth is necessary to lift people out of poverty. In a pre-oil era, the pursuit of economic growth is not exactly possible. But now, the doctrine of economic growth is embedded into almost every aspect of life, and environmental policies are no different. For almost all policy, growth became synonymous with good. The Sustainable Development Goals, a framework which governments, private enterprise, and communities have centered their environmental policies around, is a classic example. Goal number eight is decent work and economic growth. It is quite a curious thing how those two separate terms have become coupled under a single framework. It is prudent to ask, does decent work actually require economic growth? It is important to remember what growth actually represents. Economic growth, as measured by percentage of GDP, is a measure of economic activity based on production and consumption of goods and services. There are multiple ways that this can happen. Firstly, population growth means greater labor pools to produce goods that greater number of people can consume. Increases in productivity similarly increase economic growth, so more things can be produced given the same material inputs. Increased government spending, such as boosting social security benefits or infrastructure, eventually diffuses its way into the economy and increases total consumption, thus incentivizing job growth to produce those goods. This is the ideology that neoliberalism pursued, in which policies like tax cuts and deregulation would drive economic growth through increased consumption and thus production. In short, economic growth equals prosperity, built on increasing production and consumption at the cost of the environment. Even so, growth has failed to deliver many of the social goods that it seemingly promised. In 2019, the United Nations reported on the goal of zero hunger and found that 17.2% of the global population, approximately 1.3 billion people, lacked regular access to nutritious and sufficient food. This coincides with an era when global agricultural production is reaching all-time highs. In fact, 2019 was the third year in a row in which global food insecurity grew, while agricultural production also grew. The reason for this is quite obvious. If the goal of agricultural growth is to increase the total capital in that industry, it is much more economical to produce cash crops which sell well on the commodities market. This includes the broad mechanization and conglomeration of small farmholders into more efficient firms. In many countries, this resulted in a situation where economic growth only served the wealthiest farm owners, the ones who would have access to adequate capital and credit. It is increasingly clear that redistributive mechanisms are needed to provide for the poorest individuals. Growth does have some inherent advantages from a policy standpoint. Expansionist economic policy allows for governments to sidestep the problem of redistribution. Most of the billions of dollars of profit in the mining industry don't go towards the workers and under economic growth it doesn't need to. Instead of expropriating the rich, you could simply incentivize cutting down a forest or mining more materials to provide jobs for people. However, the demand for these materials is based on more consumption, thus requiring the world as a whole to consume more. By extracting value from the environment and creating more consumption, more people are able to have jobs without forcing the rich to consume less. This is why the livelihood of many people around the world depend on the purchasing of cars, electronics, and a wide range of consumer goods. The thinking with economic growth is that by generating consumption and investment, it would create jobs that eventually lead to better standards of living for the average person. There is no need to try changing political structures or distributing profits. Every policy that would come has to increase or maintain consumption, but this has some fatal flaws for both the environment and governance.
Reliance on growth as a government policy has bankrupted states of their ability to make the structural changes to economic, social, and political policy needed to be sustainable. Take the United States, which is, by all metrics, a welfare state. In fact, almost half of the federal budget goes towards mandatory spending like Social Security and Medicare, funded by taking out loans in the form of government bonds. Similarly, when the nation goes through a crisis like COVID-19, the government takes on an even greater amount of debt to stabilize economies and prevent the social unrest that might result from unemployment and lack of access to basic goods. Debts eventually have to be paid with interest. Yet, governments around the world are taking on growing amounts of debt in order to seemingly no end. This is because as long as economic growth continues above the rate of interest on that debt, it is economically sustainable but ecologically unsustainable. Since the majority of government revenue is in the form of taxes, greater consumption in any form will increase this tax revenue. Thus, without making any structural changes, countries can simply grow their way out of debt. All of our modern institutions are crushed under the weight of this mandate of growth. Tax cuts for the rich, yielding to corporations, the EPA not regulating glyphosate. This mandate creates policies that are only meant to incentivize further consumption, devoid of ethics or morality. Using Margaret Levi's work of Rule of Revenue, it is easy to see how economic growth becomes the easiest option for governance. She postulates that states want to generate revenues for whatever goals that the state or the rulers have. In order to do so, the state must be capable of extracting revenue from people that they rule over. This is a simple logic in which ideology is irrelevant. A nation could be looking to increase their economic safety nets in the form of universal healthcare or childcare services. Or a domineering state could be looking to become the dominant military power, spending lavishly on modern weapons. This all requires the collection of revenues in the form of taxes. Whether that is through coercion or force, this always incurs some cost on the state. This could be in the form of decreasing their grip on society and giving more rights to wealthy landowners. Or they could establish intricate networks of tax collectors and police to forcefully expropriate taxes from people. But the infinite growth structures of oil allowed the modern state to do something different, grow their revenues without having to restructure political mechanisms. Suppose, as a government, if you wanted to increase taxes on the rich to fund your goals, high levels of opposition are expected. Wealthy corporations and people will hire armies of lawyers and lobbyists, which will try their best to obstruct any change. This is a difficult process in which even if the tax is passed, it will have been a costly battle politically. Or you could try expropriating more from the poor. This is a similarly difficult policy, where high levels of social and political unrest is expected as people protest and lose faith in political systems. Why would growth not be a more attractive option in avoiding the need to change economic structure at all? There's no need to incur the cost of revenue extraction. This is why Social Security is funded by a payroll tax, predicated on growing populations of working adults and increased consumption. We see the flaws in this system in aging countries like Japan, where population degrowth fundamentally jeopardizes the country's economic program. Over time, this system of growth has depleted the political capital of the state, in which states find themselves beholden to the policy of growth amidst partisan gridlock. Remember, power is interchangeable. Social, economic, and political power all exist within similar spheres. If one has a lot of economic power, you can buy a lot of ad space or fund media campaigns to change political and social opinion. Those that are politically well-connected can shift social expectations and similarly move capital towards their causes. Under the doctrine of growth, governments have vacated their role in redistributing wealth and prosperity, and thus the wealthiest people in the world have grown wealthier than ever. 
This makes them socially and politically more powerful, rendering systematic changes impossible. The wealthy have an increasing role in funding political campaigns, directing the content of educational media programs, and shaping public consciousness. Increasingly, decarbonization is framed as a sector of growth, where renewables and EV companies, which are owned by the wealthy, will continue to profit as more raw materials are extracted for that purpose. Caught in a situation where it is politically impossible to extract more revenue, yet still needing to pay for the increasing cost of social provisions, nations must grow their economy and increase consumption, even if it is entirely unsustainable for the environment. We see the struggle within leftist politics, where the state is so hampered by the inability to increase taxes on the rich and redistribute gains of efficiency and productive power, that progressives like AOC have turned towards modern monetary theory as a framework for providing social goods. It sidesteps the mounting problem of unbalanced political power, and so long as the economy keeps growing, this works at a tremendous cost to the environment. And even if someday this system crumbles, the environmental damage will have been permanent.